Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about The King's Man, and I am happy to be joined by my friend Fred Cobb to talk about this one. Fred, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Happy New Year, first of all. Is it still early enough in the year to say that? I think maybe, I don't know what the rule on that is. We're still in the first half of January, but by the time people listen to this, it'll be like, January 22nd or something like that. So, uh, I don't, I, I, people might think it's weird then, but I mean, I haven't talked to you <laughs> since like October. So I hope you had a good new year, Fred. Um, yep, absolutely. <laughs> Things can only trend up from here on out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, the King's man is the, uh, newest film from the Kingsman franchise, uh, you know, uh, from writer, director, Matthew Vaughn, he put out, you know, in 2014, he put out Kingsman, the secret service. And in 2015, the sequel Kingsman, the golden circle, the King's Man is a prequel to those movies, which tells the origin story of the King's Man's actual service and how it kind of came to be in the early part of the 21st, or excuse me, in the early part of the 20th century. It, But the movie starts out back in like 1902 when a British aristocrat named Orlando, who's the Duke of Oxford, uh, played by Ray Fiennes, and his uh, wife Emily and their young son Conrad are visiting a concentration camp in South Africa uh, during the Boer War, and they're working on behalf of the Red Cross. Uh, Emily is killed in a sniper attack. And uh, at that point, Orlando decides he needs to like, you know, take matters into his own hands to help make the world a safer place. Uh, 12 years later, uh, he uh, he is just living in his uh, massive rich guy house with his son, uh, Conrad. And it is kind of a, we're, they're kind of at the dawn of uh, World War One. Uh, he ends up kind of getting dragged in by some other military friends to, uh, you know, uh, escort his friend, uh, uh, and Arch Archduke Franz Ferdinand, uh, through Sarajevo, and uh, you know, all of a sudden we find ourselves in like a World War One origin story re- revisionist history movie. And I mean, I don't, I don't need to like give you guys a whole uh, lesson on World War One. Frank, uh, quite frankly, I think Fred might be better suited to do that than I am. But like again, you could also just go listen to our 1917 podcast if you want to do that. Yeah. Uh, um, but basically, uh, this movie ends up like you know following a lot of the principles in uh, from World War One. Uh, ironically enough, um, Tom Hollander plays uh, uh, King George, Kaiser Wilhelm, and Tsar Nicholas, uh, and we kind of see them like kind of interacting as there are different machinations going on with the war. And different principal actors, uh, principal characters in this movie have you know different aims and goals with how they want that war to go and uh, which countries need to stay and where. But the important the important thing it really is not to get too bogged down in that. But there is a there is someone there, there is kind of a new more fictional element like pulling strings here a, a mysterious shepherd who uh has his has his own motivations who we very notably don't see his face for you know about two hours and two hours of the two hour and ten minute runtime of this movie and uh we end up but seeing that he has a you know just kind of a, his own cohort of people in his secret mountaintop headquarters uh who you know all have their own aims to support whatever you know mischievous goals he has uh notably notably among them is the russian mystic uh, grigory rasputin who is uh also a trusted advisor to czar nicholas and uh you know uh rasputin you know uh, ends up manipulating them to uh, get them to withdraw from the war. Uh, but then obviously for, for a lot of reasons, uh, a lot of the Western powers are just like not going to be happy about that if that happens. And uh, because of that, Conrad is like begging his dad to let him fight the war to like help this side. And his dad's like, ah, I don't know. I don't really want you doing that. It's unsafe. I already lost my wife. How about you come do this? Like, you know, this, this join the secret network of spies that I've like kind of like created out of a lot of the, you know, helpers, like my two servants and who have networked with help from all around the world. And we do what we can here and it makes a difference. And, uh, and Conrad kind of helps them out, but then, you know, kind of goes and does his own thing. And the movie, you know, kind of takes it from there as the, as this, you know, thing that actually, Fred, I, I don't know my world war one that well, and it actually kind of tracks uh, pretty well with a lot of the characters and actions here, but they they kind of insert their own thing. And uh, I, most notably among it, though, like after his wife died, Orlando, uh, you know, became a pacifist. And that's why largely, aside from like wanting his son to be safe, he doesn't really see a lot of the value in like going to fight for the country as honorable as some may think that is. So I think that's notable, Fred, and an interesting way to talk about this movie, because I mean, I wasn't honestly going to see it until you like said you had an interest in talking about it. I was like, oh, well, I mean, like it just it got bad reviews. And like, I don't I honestly didn't really like I just, I don't know. I, I was just, I mean, it was just a very busy award season for me and it just, I just wasn't going to make it a high priority, but it hung around long enough and you wanted to talk about it. And I did enjoy the first two Kingsman movies. I kind of forgot how I felt about the golden circle. I went back and looked at my letterbox and I think I actually gave it three and a half or four stars, but I barely had anything to say about it. I was like, Oh, 
this was fun. Well, and these movies are fun. They have violence. They are funny. I'm speaking more of the first two. And uh, I, I'm wondering, though, like violence is such a big part of that. Is there something beyond that? Those kind of like, you know, those like fun, goofy things from those first two movies that you particularly appreciated. And thus, what did you think when all of a sudden it kind of became apparent that a very key figure in this movie was going to be a pacifist? What did you think about like the direction it seemed like Matthew Vaughn might be taking it as you saw this movie develop? So here's the weird thing: I've never actually seen the Golden Circle, oh, which is probably a good, which is probably yeah, which is probably the good a good thing uh, because I think a lot of criticism that the King's Man got was that it was tonally and stylistically very different from the King's Man movies, especially mm. how it incorporated that sense of humor. So I think it was actually a good thing that I didn't have that background. I had seen the first one way back in 2014 when it first came out, and I had a good time with it back then. Um, but I was more interested in this one as an origin story set during World War One, because you already brought up the 1917 podcast with it a year mm -hmm. and a half ago or so. Actually, has it been that long? Yeah, uh, a little over a year at this point, I think. Would that have been the beginning of? Wait, when did that come out? That came out early 20. We would have been doing that. At... We would have been doing that at the beginning of 2020, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Wow. It's so been almost two years, probably years. exactly two years. Yeah, time time is so weird now. <laughs> that, that, that is insane. Okay, well, so yeah, two years. <laughs> But, but I did mention during that part that World War I has a very strong fascination for me because as a conflict, I find it much more morally ambiguous than World War II because World War II has always been this big heroic story of uh, the Allied powers taking on the Axis, the good mm -hmm. guys against the evil guys. Um, and that's a story that holds up within the context of what happened during the war for the most part. Uh, World War I, on the other hand, was... A lot more shades of gray in terms of how the whole conflict escalated in the first place and we see a lot of that play out here and that's why i think it was kind of an, a unique setting for a spying agency to come around because spying was a major part of world war one and a lot of people don't really know about it because world war ii gets a lot of that attention hmm. especially with characters like alan turing what he did for uh, great britain during the war um, you saw the origins of the OSS during World War II, which later became the CIA. Uh, but it was a major factor in World War I as well. So that's why I thought this idea of having the Kingsmen be incorporated into World War I uh, was actually a pretty fascinating one. And what I found really strange is that Matthew Vaughn wasn't really intent on telling that story hmm. throughout this movie as a Kingsman origin story. And the fact that the Duke of Oxford is such a pacifist actually really ends up hurting the agency of these characters for a long time, because especially during the first 30 minutes, I kind of got the sense that events were playing out pretty much along with how history went with a few minor deviations. But he chooses not to really intervene, even when he and his son are in Sarajevo with the Archduke. I mean, they're sitting in the car with him, literally, but history ultimately still plays out the way it did in reality because he makes the choice that he doesn't really want to be involved anymore because it's too much of a danger for his son, and he doesn't really believe in fighting wars for his country anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's almost a bit of a surprise when eventually he opens up that bookshelf and he has that basement with the spying agency there already, because I thought we would still get to all of that. And instead, it's already been established to an extent. So I found it kind of strange that for the first 30 minutes almost, Vaughn just kind of lets the whole war develop the way it did historically and there isn't really a lot of development in terms of how the duke of oxford and his son are really going to be involved in all of that hmm. yeah I'm, I'm wondering do you think that well so once it starts to change and i at this point by the time people listen to this movie have been out for a month so i'm not doing a spoiler section i mean it's also like largely does track with the events of world war one I. I mean we can we, we can talk about who that shepherd ends up being at the end i suppose there's not really anything else there's nothing else to spoil uh for the most part in this movie uh i'm wondering you know, like uh when w when there is more intervention going on did you see a lot of like uh, intention or uh, much actually like thought going into like w what it means and the way he did kind of change things. I got it. Was, I think it was funny. Our, fr our friend Daniel uh, wrote in his letterbox review. Uh, he wasn't very high on the movie, but you know, he can, he can tend to be very high or very low on something. And he said, only Matthew Vaughn can make a movie about world war one and lament the fall of monarchies. Did any, did, 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 did when you, when you hear someone like have that take on the movie, do you think that like, uh, 
Matt Vaughn had like a clear idea of like where he was going and like why he felt the need to like do this actual like kind of retelling of World War One. Did it strike you like, oh, I this actually makes sense where they're going with this, or did you like, ah, I don't really know if they really put a, uh, had a, had much purpose behind these choices? Yes and no. So what I think the movie does very well, and you said we're not going to do a spoiler section, right? So sure. I can. I can mention some of the bigger stuff that happens later. Yeah, in the just go for it aside okay. from like who that shepherd ends up being. We can do that at the end, I guess. Okay, fair enough. Um, so I think what it does very well, I don't know if this is necessarily the right movie to tell that story, but I think it does hit home that point uh, rather strongly, is that World War I was really such a wasteful conflict that this idea of one man wanting to join up uh, is really just an insane idea to us nowadays because we know how many people were just... Uh, blown to pieces and shot to death in the trenches and for four years there were such minimal gains that the idea of voluntarily signing up for that carnage is really just bizarre so i think he does a good job of conveying this idea that patriotism for the wrong reasons uh, can really be quite damaging to entire generations because that's really what happened with world war one an entire generation of guys was killed in a war that ended up being totally pointless because 15 years, 20 years later, there was another one because none of the political animosities were fully resolved at that point. So I think in that sense, it really does a good job, especially because Conrad ends up paying the ultimate price. I was honestly, I found that was a a legitimately shocking moment, actually. I did too. And I was really appreciative that they did that because that really hammered home this idea that it's not about being a hero, like going off into war kind of major consequences for families. And he was just one guy who ended up dead out of millions, obviously, but it really tied the war to the Duke in a very personal way. And I'm glad that they finally did that because up until then, I thought the historical events were almost a little detached from the actual origin story of the Kingsman. And then I think that was a very effective way of actually fusing the two together. Yeah, Um, I... You know, Roger Deakins didn't shoot this movie. And I mean, I, th- I think those scenes are fairly well done, but like it might not be like, you know, on the level of 1917, but they're, you know, it, 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 they're both consistent in how they like depict how those fights looked, I would say. And it's interesting in that, like, it just, it, I mean, they both do such a good job of like uh, just showing like just how I, 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 I don't want to necessarily say like uh, pointless, but how directionless that thing must have felt. I mean, it's not dissimilar from, I guess it's not even totally dissimilar from like some different like war on terror movies I've watched where it's like, you can't even follow what their orders are or what they're doing or anything like that. And here it's a little, I mean, maybe it's a little more, uh, it's a, it's a little more clear in that, you know, like they're, they're this kind of pointing at each other from these trenches, but it's like, man, like they're just literally sitting in these trenches, just like throwing bombs. Like what, what, what are we even doing here? It, it, it just, it just feels like so directionless and meandering and like, in. and, and it's just like, all right, we're going to eventually need to send one guy on a suicide mission. Let's just stand around and wait for someone to do it. And it's like, guys, like, what, what is this all for? And I guess that kind of like, it goes to what you're saying about how like World War One was just like in its own ways is like uh, w- way more sprawling and not as like clear cut as to like what, what the aims were here. And I think if nothing else, like it does eventually like get you, get, get you there to a point. Let, let, let me then separately ask you though, I guess, because I guess what I'm struggling with is because I agree with a lot of what you said about it and how it ultimately like, those moments do kind of tie it in well to why the Duke of Oxford uh, would have wanted to like start the Kingsman service. But I mean, if, if we're going there, like, do you think it, do you think it needed everything like with the shepherd and with Rasputin and that whole corner of the movie? Do you think this movie is like tighter and more focused if it just like does away with all that? Whereas it seems like Matthew Vaughn at least felt the need to like, like, you know, add, add in some new like characters rather than just like doing like a pure, like, you know, historic cosplay type of thing. Yeah, and that's where I actually kind of agree with Daniel to an extent, mm-hmm. because by the mere fact that you have this secret organization pulling the strings in the background, you almost suggest, I mean, obviously this didn't happen in history, so I wouldn't say that Bond goes so far as to absolve these monarchies. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, the reason the war started was just this total diplomatic fuck up, where none of the kings of the Kaiser of Germany, uh, the king of England, uh, the Tsar of Russia and some of the rulers of the smaller countries. Who, who I didn't know. Born. Apparently all are actually were cousins. I don't even know, understand how that works. That's just how little they're I all, yes, they're, yes, they were all grand, Queen Victoria's grandchildren. Mm, okay. So through marriage, that somehow ended up being a real thing. And 
they actually were on fairly good terms with each other before the war. Uh, mm. The German Kaiser and the Russian uh, Tsar, they used to write letters to mm. each other all the time. Um, and then, of course, the war broke out and that was all over. Uh, but that's why I think this whole idea of having a secret organization pulling the strings in the background is it, it kind of damages this whole idea of World War One, where it's really just these people were so short-sighted and blinded by their greed and hubris uh, that they were willing to plunge the entire world into a massive inferno just to hold on to their power. Hmm. And when you have people pulling the strings in the background to manipulate them to make those decisions... Like I said, I don't think you necessarily let them off the hook, but at the very least, there are external factors at play that kind of explain why they would have made those choices. And I think the really fascinating thing about World War One is that you don't necessarily have good guys and bad guys in there. You just have a whole bunch of people who are too stupid to realize that if they were going to go to war with each other, it wouldn't be over after a few months, as they all assumed. Instead, it took years and the entire continent was decimated afterwards. Yeah, and a lot so, of death. Yeah. I mean, it's fun to look at the secret organization that's operating in the background because they were all historical figures. The Daniel Bruhl character apparently later became some spiritual advisor for Hitler. It's uh, weird. I, I don't know like much about that guy, but like I was like looking on Wikipedia and I saw there was an actual like link to the guy he was playing. And it was like mm -hmm. the guy, it, it, it says that he was actually like a, like an Austrian Jewish publicist. I mean, so guy must have had like a very odd like path to get where he got. Yeah. But actually, it says he died in 1933, so he wasn't even really around for, like, Hitler doing everything he actually did to the Jews. But, yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. Like, I mean, it's, it's at least interesting enough to, like, see the depictions of those guys. I guess I was just, like, I don't know. I, I, we, we haven't, I mean, we haven't even, like, actually, we talked, we've, we've mentioned the Duke of Oxford a couple times. We haven't really talked that much about Ralph Fiennes. I actually, like, really, really enjoyed his presence in the movie. I think one of the things that it kind of loses from the prior two movies is that, it, again, like, like I was saying at the beginning, I mean, those movies are like, those movies were action comedies. And I don't think this movie is all that funny. Like, there, there are a couple of lighter moments, and some of the stuff with Rasputin is kind of played for last, but it, does, it just doesn't try to be that kind of movie, which seems like a little bit of a missed opportunity given what people liked about those previous two movies. I mean, honestly, I'm not there for the plot. Like I, I went back because, like I said, I was trying to refresh myself on what I liked about the Golden Circle. And I, in my, I mean, not that like all my letterbox reviews are all that great, but like I just, I wrote like a paragraph because I didn't even have anything to say about the plot. I was like, this, sh this yeah. stuff, this was just fun, and I liked watching these people, and that was all I really came from it with. And I'm like, maybe they should have gone some more for some more funny. But the, it's like the fact that they didn't, and there's a, some other qualms I've already discussed that didn't change the fact that like I was still pretty into it whenever Ralph finds us on screen. It's just like you know, I feel like he didn't even get as many like dry humorous moments. Like there's a couple phony moments where he like felt falls off the wagon or is just like drinking a lot and stuff. But like mm -hmm. for the most part, like didn't even really get some of the same funny moments. Colin Firth got in the first two movies where he got to be like very dryly funny when he was uh, teaching Eggsy uh, here. It's just like, you know, he's being very serious with his son the whole time. But like, I, I feel like he actually brought like a lot of weight to that character in such a way where it's like, I'm still enjoying really watching you, even if this kind of thing is not what I came to the Kingsman movies for. So what did you think actually about just like watching his relationship with Conrad? So I really enjoyed uh, seeing Ray Fiennes in this particular role. Essentially, it reminded me a bit of his performance as M, except if M got off his, away from his desk and actually got involved. <laughs> and, I, and I kind of like that because, I mean, he's, He's a guy who's like in his late 50s, I think, at this point. And it's always fun to see people like that assume the mantle of the unconventional action hero. Um, and I think he was very credible on the part of the British gentleman who kind of tries to defy the imperialist stereotypes and makes an effort to atone for that in his own way. It's kind of strange that at the same time, even though he always talks about trying to do better than what England has done in the past, he still has a black valet who ends up taking uh, a bullet for him. And he also has uh, a servant uh, in Gemma Otterton whose primary, primary skills seem to be to cook and bake and make him tea. Um, so not necessarily that progressive in some ways, but... Well, he, I, I guess, yeah. So the, the, I guess those characters can be read a couple of ways and that like they're like kind of slotted into these roles, but I guess we're supposed to like also like the fact that he empowers them in some way by actually bringing them into the service. Yeah, it's, it's a strange mixture of uh, how that relationship plays out. I'm not entirely sure if it's necessarily ideal, uh, but it also kind of says that in some ways he's still stuck in that mindset that, I mean, he is a British aristocrat. That's how he was brought up. 
So he's like slowly trying to change things. And he's also trying to instill that mentality in his son because he's a guy who grew up in a time of colonialism and war. I mean, that would have been his upbringing during uh, Queen Victoria's ruling. And he's trying hard to instill his, into his son the sense that you don't really want to live in this world that I lived in. Like, we have to do better. We have to stop fighting each other about uh, ridiculous ideas that these people way above us have. And that's really, I guess, the tragedy of this movie, that he fails. And that's also why I think you ultimately can't do a typical Kingsman movie in this setting because that's not what World War I is about. It's such a dour and somber event that I actually thought some of the more humorous attempts, like what happens with Rasputin, it almost felt a little off compared to the rest of the tone of the movie. And that's why I was getting the sense in my theater a lot of times when they were trying to get people to laugh with those moments, it didn't really hit because people were kind of unsure whether they were supposed to laugh or not. So that's, I think, that I think is where you run into that weird uh, conflict of the really depressing setting, but the fact that you have a franchise that's really kind of driven by its humor. Yeah, no, I guess the, 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 those first two movies are like, you know, benefit from just, you know, being freed from any kind of like real historical restraints because they're just, they're set in the right in modern times and you can, they, they can do whatever the hell they want. And here it's like, like you're saying, like, how, how excited can you get for certain moments when you actually like know the, know, know what the the stakes are. And like Fred's already very well described the stakes of, of, of World War One. Um you should you should mention like uh, that Fred mentioned there uh, being a, a a a black servant whose name is Shoa, uh, codename Merlin. He's, he's played by Jiamen Hansu. And I, one thing I did like was that even if the movie wasn't super funny, I th- I thought that character got to have like a very warm presence, and it seemed like he was having fun. Uh, again, you can still say there's still plenty to say and um, about the about the fact that they had this uh, about, about about the fact that they had this um, you know this this black guy basically just like working for this white aristocrat and just there to like, like literally like Fred said take bullets for him one thing I was enjoying in isolation was seeing like how much fun he seemed to be having in a movie like this which maybe wasn't as fun as the first two movies but when have you ever thought of Jaiman Hansu as being a guy that was going to like actually be in a comedy he's always like one of the yeah, most no. serious guys serious guys in the room and uh, fierce guys in the rooms and like every kind of thing he does so it was really cool to see like he was actually like very friendly and warm with Conrad and uh, got to get in like on the action and in a more fun way than it typically seems like he does and stuff he pops up in. So I think that was another reason why I enjoyed that corner of the movie so much and why I was just like kind of a very eh whenever we were like back getting all the exposition about the war or hanging out on that, um, on that mountaintop with these in the evil air. So. Yeah. And just in general, the movie is incredibly well cast. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have people pop up all over the place, even for smaller roles like this child's dance, uh, best known for playing, or at, le- at least recently, best known for playing Tywin Lannister in Game of Thrones. Uh, he plays this really kind of hawkish and brutal English general who committed a lot of atrocities during the Boer Wars, but then he is also being treated as this kind of sympathetic old chap and friend to the Duke, uh, whose death ultimately uh, pushes him to get more involved. Uh, interestingly enough, also a historical figure, the guy actually did die uh, on a ship in 1916 when it got torpedoed by a German uh, submarine. Mm. So didn't realize that guy was a historical figure. Read up a little bit on him as well. Um, there's Daniel Brühl, of course. I already mentioned him. Like Stanley Tucci shows up for like two minutes. Yeah, I missed that, actually. It was like blinking. The United States ambassador. There's Aaron Taylor-Johnson, who plays uh, a soldier who uh, gets sent home to take uh, Conrad's place when uh, initially he's supposed to come back uh, and the Duke tries really hard to get him out of the trenches. So it's always nice to see these familiar faces pop up and it's nice that Matthew Vaughn has that kind of clout. I mean, I guess Matthew um, Vaughn is a friend of Aaron Taylor Johnson's from like doing the kick-ass movies, but it also, yep. it seems like a very naked attempt to like uh, leave the leave the option open to do some kind of like miniseries or extra mm-hmm. string of movies into the 1920s and 30s or something like that. Should they want to bring in a, star, a movie star like Aaron Taylor Johnson to do that? Because like he, he's almost too big to like have that uh, this, that small of a role in this movie and just never revisit this world again. <laughs> yeah, and did you actually stay for the mid-credit scene? God, yeah, I did. That was weird. <laughs> yeah, it, it was actually even stranger for me because uh, I was 
catching up a little bit on uh, Ray Fiennes' filmography recently, and I uh, just watched The Reader for the first time. I've never watched The Reader. I've never watched it. Uh, yeah, so the, main, so the main character is actually uh, the guy who plays Hitler in this movie. So I was like, oh, wait, I recognize this guy. I've just seen him uh, in a movie. Huh. And yeah, then all of a sudden he shows up there. Um, interesting enough, Ray Fiennes actually plays the older version of that character in The Reader. So oh. that was kind of a fun connection there. Uh, but yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know if the movie is going to be successful enough to warrant a spin-off or a sequel. I'm not even necessarily sure I would want that to happen. I, like I said, don't necessarily think I need the Kingsman franchise to tackle World War II because that's going to create a tonal conflict that might even be even stranger than what we got with World War One. Um, well, that also just seems like if they're going to try and do anything kind of funny to pay lip service to the idea this thing should be funny, because I'm sure that some of the negative reaction to this movie is them getting away from that. Like, I don't I feel like that's a really hard tightrope to walk and like to make World War II funny. You know, like, yeah, like I mean, yeah, like, I mean, I, I, I think both of us did like Jojo Rabbit and both of us like I'm guessing you also like Inglorious Bastards. But like, you know, yep. Taika Waititi and Quentin Tarantino are like that. Like th- those are very, very talented writers. I don't know if I, I don't know if Matthew Vaughn is like, you know, uh, that like I, I, if I, if I trust him to be like that delicate and like uh, sharp such that like he could pull off that balance. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not, I'm also not necessarily convinced what it says uh, that Lenin and Hitler are essentially in the same club together, trying to take over the world together. It, it kind of, <laughs> It dumbs down and oversimplifies the ideologies to a point where I don't necessarily want that to happen, even in an alternate history setting. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not convinced that that is the right way for those movies to go. But um, I, I did find it kind of uh, intriguing that they're already setting that up, even though I don't know if the movie is necessarily going to do well enough or if it did well enough to justify that. Yeah, I, I, and who knows? It's who knows how they're measuring anything because this came out right in the surge, the Omicron surge. So uh, that that that's its own that's its own asterisk, even compared to some other movies that have come out during the pandemic. I would say, you know, even I mean, even stuff that got released a month before. You know, um, I let me ask you more broadly uh, about the action in this movie because, like I said, a lot of people really do appreciate the action in uh, in in the first two movies, and I've seen some criticism of it, uh, like. I think honestly, maybe like the most impressive action sequence here is the is the big set piece with Rasputin. But uh, it sounds like you you and I maybe weren't uh, totally huge on how that they pulled that off tonally. Were you able to appreciate the action in like isolated moments in the movie, though? Oh yeah, for sure. I, I like I said, I don't necessarily think that scene plays out especially well because it's just so over the top and kind of weird what the dynamics there are that I just couldn't really get into it. Mm-hmm. But I will say that there is a really cool fight scene in the trenches uh, mm-hmm. where they can't hit each other because as soon as they start making noise, uh, the machine guns are going to start oh, firing. Oh, I, I forgot about that. Threats. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's like a really cool like knife and hand-to-hand combat fight going on where they just have to stay quiet. And I really, I thought it was really cool. Like it, it's in the darkness. Uh, they have to be as quiet as possible. Like, but it wasn't too dark them. either. Like, I could tell what was going on. Like, yeah. you know, every, every, a lot of times well in movies, shot, TVs these days, like, the stuff's too dark for no reason. That was actually pretty cool. And like, uh, I never very unique from anything I'd ever seen. Where, like you said, it made total sense that like, if anyone made any noise, like they were they were gonna they could easily just die by friendly fire. You know? Yeah, they're all gonna get killed. Which, mm-hmm. like, it took me a few seconds to realize that, but as, then as soon as it clicked, I was like, "Oh shit, yeah, yeah. wow, they're just in no man's land, and mm-hmm. they're not gonna know who they're firing on." Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a pretty cool scene. I also really liked the uh, the climax where uh, he has to jump out of a plane and it just totally backfires initially. I mean, the, the CGI was a little spotty in it, but I still thought it was a really fun scene where uh, initially, of course, tries to get his again his black valet to do the <laughs> jump for him, and when that doesn't work, he. Uh, he gracefully agrees to do it himself. And however um, problematic that might be, it, that, that that was probably the moment where I laughed the most in the movie, where it's like, yeah. you would take a bullet for me, but not jump out of a plane for me with a parachute? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that, that, I thought that entire scene was like really funny. I also thought there were some uh, pretty cool moments during that fight. Uh, the scene was in the trailer already, but I still thought it was kind of cool when he throws the grenade and he holds up the shield and then he gets thrown out the door. Mm. That was kind of a fun scene. So, you know, there are a couple of moments in there where I was like, you know what? This this is enjoyable enough on the surface. I just wish it, A, hadn't taken as long to get there. 
because like I said, the first 30 minutes, I really just thought uh, were a lot of setup of historical events that I didn't really need. And the other thing is, again, that the first Kingsman movie, which again, I haven't seen in a long time, but a lot of the action was really kind of humorous. I'm mainly thinking about that bar fight where Colin Firth's character comes in. Just kind of calmly, calmly, calmly locks the door and then just goes nuts. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's a very different kind of uh, action set piece that they're going for here. But, you know, some of them still worked. So honestly, yeah, whenever we saw stuff like that, I had a good time with it. I'll, I'll ask you at the end about any odds and ends we didn't already touch on. Let me just ask you, and people can jump out now if they don't want, like, the one thing that's actually a spoiler in this movie to be spoiled for them. And But, like, you know, we, 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 here, but yeah, now's your chance. Uh, go away. But the, the one thing we kind of, like, we, we find out at the end is that, like, this, this shepherd whose face we, like, noticeably have, like, not seen the entire time. And it just in such a way where, like, it, it really felt like the movie, like, way too easily, like, tipped its hand about, like, you know, like the way they shot that, that it was going to be someone we kind of already knew. Um, but like it ends up being this character, Matthew Goodplay's Captain Morton, who, you know, is like uh, right there along with uh, Charles Dance's uh, Herbert Kitchener, the, you know, the longtime military guy that is like uh, friends with the Duke. And did Captain Morton make enough of an impression on you in their earlier scenes that you even cared at that point when they had the revelation? Not really, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Although... I will say what I found kind of strange was, I mean, he briefly touches on his motivations that he's Scottish and that obviously the English uh, had a very poor track record of treating that part of their empire for centuries, mm. which makes sense on the surface, but then I feel like it's just never really fleshed out. It's just a fun opportunity for Matthew Good to do a Scottish accent. And yeah, I just clicked on his uh, Wikipedia. He's not even Scottish himself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this whole organization just exists to create chaos. And I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of those organizations. Um, Spectre comes to mind. In fact, I'm getting sure. the sense. I mean, bald guy sitting at a table with a secret <laughs> organization. We don't see his face. He gives orders. Uh, they commit uh, acts of terrorism all across Europe. Uh, very much in the vein of what Blofeld did in the Bond movies. Uh, so in that sense, it was almost, I feel like, uh, a bit of a nice tribute uh, by Bond that after all he is making a movie about British spies and James Bond is of course uh, the shining example of that and has been for, uh, for the past several decades mm-hmm. uh, but yeah I mean it was kind of clear like you said already that it had to be someone we already met and there was a fake out scene where he we, where we think he dies and then he doesn't show up again mm-hmm. um, but, but yeah it just kind of felt like they needed some guy to show up again for it to be a big reveal but uh, they hadn't really done a good enough job laying the groundwork to make that seem like a major payoff or anything like that. Yeah, I just didn't care about the guy. Like, it was like, oh, okay, uh, I forgot. Like, he was just kind of there for a couple scenes and talking to them and kind of led to believe he's a good guy. So I guess I should be kind of shocked, but like, I didn't really care enough about him to feel much when that did happen. So I was, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, that was, I didn't really have much to add on that point, but it's like kind of the, it's supposed to be the one like big time, like, oh shit moment of the movie and it just like again like i feel like you could still build to some kind of exciting climax where um where orlando gets in on the action with without necessarily even like having that whole corner of the movie i i know i've I've complained a little bit but haven't really articulated what an ideal version of this movie looks like but i just i just feel like it, it it certainly tried to do too much and as you've intimated at multiple times i think the most interesting thing was was this network of spies and how it turned into this to, to the kingsman secret service and it, it just kind of gets pulled back in at the end without like you know really actually seeing that work that much you have a couple of sequences where it's like oh we have a guy in the white house or we have a guy in this embassy and that's kind of it and it's like i i I would have been much more interested in like the internal workings of that part of the origin story and then as opposed to a lot of the other stuff we got in this movie so um, and it's kind of unfortunate that the shepherd reveal is such a dud because just think about what the movie is really saying i mean this is the guy who basically single-handedly started world war one and has been manipulating every single power around the world into taking action for the past several years and I do think that there is an interesting component to World War One that makes it especially fascinating as a sort of uh, event in human history. On one hand, you have millions of soldiers getting slaughtered on the battlefield. Uh, this idea that they're just being pawns that are serving at the pleasure of these monarchs. But at the same time, you're just one single guy who shot an archduke and that created this massive chain of events uh, that really led to the whole war. I mean, just one guy firing that bullet. So you really have this idea here that ultimately 
just one single person can make a huge difference, even in a big event like this. So it's kind of unfortunate that the guy who ultimately is revealed to be uh, the person who's been pulling the strings is really just some minor player we've seen before, not somebody who's really had a tight grip on the events uh, we've seen play out for the past two hours. I think there was an opportunity here to really tie that in much better. And it really kind of felt like an afterthought in the sense that we need to have a big bad guy. We're keeping him a secret. So now we need to pay it off somehow with someone we've already met. And it yeah. wasn't built up enough to really be justified. Yeah, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about them just kind of taking some of the agency away from these guys. And, yeah. you know, maybe you just don't even need the shepherd in his lair if you just uh, just kind of like focus your ire on the people that actually like kind of deserved it in real life. And you can feel you can still have some other way of like, I mean, distinguishing things here. So it's like, um, it's it's not just like you only slightly altering World War One and to the point where it feels like you should just make a documentary. Like I think I, Matthew Vaughn in a vacuum is a talented enough filmmaker to like you know bring bring his own thing to that you know and, and make it feel unique without like creating some you know really really outlandish uh, villain who has some like tenuous tie to something else in the movie. So um, yeah. let me ask you, you brought up, you brought up Bond on your own a couple of times there. Uh, one of the reviews I was reading, like uh, implied that they thought Matthew Vaughn should make a Bond movie. What, 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 what do you think when you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's a bad idea. I think I heard because... that thrown around a couple of times, even before this too, just and it's, I guess the comparisons were inevitable once he started making these movies. Yeah. And we've had the discussion before that. I think a lot of people would appreciate Bond going back to its roots a little bit more, by which I mean, less dour, less depressing, mm -hmm. and just a little bit more fun and humorous again, which is really what the franchise was about for a long time. Even in the Connery era, you still had a very distinct sense of British humor that all but evaporated when Daniel Craig took over the part. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think Matthew Bond would, wouldn't be a bad guy to bring that sense of humor back to the franchise. Uh, like I said, he's decent enough at uh, shooting action scenes. We've seen that in here. So I think if he has a more, honestly, I think this was almost his addition, audition for doing the Bond franchise. And maybe that's why he even toned down some of the ridiculous elements from the first two Kingsman movies, because he wanted to show that he can sort right. of do a better balancing act between both the funny components and the more serious spying stuff. Mm. And I'm just not convinced that he pulled it off as successfully as he might have liked. Fred, are, are, there, are there any other parts of this that we, uh, that we want to, um, uh, that, that I didn't ask you about that you want to touch on before we wrap up the discussion of the Kingsman? Um, I, I will say there is that usual component there where uh, the Gemma Otterton character obviously ends up falling oh. in love with the Duke, even though, of course, the actress is 25 years younger than him and it was totally unneeded at that point. Uh, I, I just wish movies would get away from that. Mm. I just wish they'd realize that a romantic angle isn't always necessary, especially Fred, the film hey, force. Hey, she's also a good cook. There is more to her, Fred. <laughs> mm. Yeah, well, yeah, and she makes fantastic tea. And she was also a Bond girl already. So clearly she has some experience with that. But yeah, I just wish we'd get to a point where that was no longer needed. Like that's something I really liked in Shang-Chi, for example. Like, you Oh had... my God, I forgot. She is the one from uh, Quantum of Solace, Quantum isn't of she? Solace, oh yeah, God, she that's like, she, like, God, she had like, that, that was like the worst, like, that was probably like mm -hmm. the worst Bond girl uh, use of any kind of Bond girl in like all of the, uh, all of the Craig movies too. God, I feel bad for her. Yeah, she literally showed up to arrest him and they end up in bed together after five minutes. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, she's she, yeah, she's had a bit of an unfortunate career. She was also in Prince of Persia, which obviously has a whole bunch of issues. Um, Clash of the Titans, which well also I feel like I've heard I feel like I've heard people talk about Jim Arton before in like a like a hey, we like that person kind of way. And it seems like maybe she just has like hasn't gotten like the right roles. I'm looking at her filmography and like I've seen like Honestly, like I guess I've heard of some of these movies, but I don't think I've watched any of them except for The King's Man and Quantum of Solace. I don't, I don't know, I don't know why that is. I just, I, I just, I just, this haven't happened to like turn any of these on. And it's, um, I mean, look, working actress, great for her, but just nothing that's really like been my thing, you know. So yeah, yeah she's done a couple of smaller British indie movies, which he's been getting good reviews for. Mm, so I think that's something she should probably stick with. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times when you end up signing on for blockbusters, it's very hit or miss. It's very easy to get typecast, and then you end up being in a bunch of shitty movies that are really beneath your talent. Um, so that's unfortunate for her. Oh, I've seen the voices that Ryan Reynolds movie. I think I like that with because I think I only watched it because it had my girl Anna Kendrick way back in 2014. So she was oh, in that. Yeah. And I think that's actually like a pretty interesting movie. I mean, I think the other movies like kind of the other Kingsman movies, I think kind of like, I think, I think the golden circle actually kind of like 
I actually brought in a, a fairly good female agent, but like the first one just had like a very unfortunate, like uh, anal sex joke at the end. Yeah. That's uh, which, actually what I remember it for mostly as well, man. Which like wasn't great. And like, that's the most notable moment you can think of for a female character in the Kingsman, yeah. the secret service, unfortunately. And like I said, I think they did bring in like another agent into this like Academy that uh, Eggsy's kind of a part of in the second one. Um, but like, yeah, it's like, you would think by the third one, he would, you know, it's fine. Like I like the right Ray Fine's performance, but it's like, you know, notably, you know, I just knew that I knew that his wife was going to die in that opening. Like, I feel like it telegraphed it. Once that woman was not played by like a noted, like a, a well-known actress, I was like, oh, I bet, I bet oh, she's going to die. Rude, rude. That is Alexandra Maria Lara, who's a very famous German actress. How dare you? Well, I mean, you know what I mean. And yeah, I know, I know, I know. well known to us in America, not people that are from Germany. And, uh, and like, I mean, I'm sure she's fine, but like once I didn't recognize that face, I'm like, oh my God, this, I, I, she already feels like cannon fodder. And sure enough, so the, the, the woman's death is used to give the main character like his like defining personality trait of pacifism for the rest of the movie. And that is like what that one woman's death is used for. And then like, again, the only other woman we see is like the one like several years his junior, who is like a, a, a great, a, a great house worker who then uh, falls in love with him. And the movie has like, you can count on like one hand and, and the other, the other, the other women in this movie is there to seduce Woodrow Wilson. And I, I can't think of another like speaking part for a woman in this movie. So uh, I'm at a loss as well right now. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, just, I guess that it's a, it's a very fair critique to level at it. And you would hope that like, you know, if hey, like, I will say though, that makes Matthew Vaughn even more qualified to direct a Bond movie, because after all, that is something that franchise has had a historical issue with as well. So, yeah, you know, he, to, to his credit, Matthew Vaughn did the Kingsman movies and, uh, that you know hit girl is like a, actually a really good character my girl chloe grace Moretz. so shout out there it's not that he can't write a, a female character but he just like for some reason hasn't chosen to do so in this movies and you would hope that like were he given the opportunity to do something like bond he would find it in him to uh you know at, write a like really compelling bond girl which you know is like you know not something that happens on a regular basis uh so i guess we'll see where he goes with that um fred any final thoughts on uh the king's man yeah, a little bit of a disappointment on the whole. I mean, it's a very saturated landscape at the movies right now. And I mean, you already said that you almost didn't see it. Mm -hmm. And I wish I could issue a wholehearted recommendation for it because I really wish there would be more movies out there about World War One. I. I mean, some of the great classics of cinema were set during World War One: The Warrens of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago. Um, we already talked about 1917. Da Daniel, so, Lima, Daniel Lima's beloved War Horse. Well, yeah, War Horse. Oh, yeah. One of Spielberg's absolute finest uh, yeah, maybe not. But um, but but I will say, like like I said, it's such a fascinating time period, and I really wish it would get explored more in uh, cinematic endeavors. And it's just not. So it's kind of unfortunate that the one time uh, there's a bit of a unique approach to it that uh, it really kind of fell short of its potential. Did you ever see Testament of Youth? no i have not that came out in 2014 um it was in and that's kind of like a honestly it's kind of like a romance but also kind of a world war one movie it has uh it has alicia vikander kit harrington and taron edgerton um oh hmm. yeah fantastic. i mean yeah it, i mean it has, they're all acting their asses off like I, I watched that movie and i think it came out like it came out in this summer it, it will actually it got like a 2014 festival release came out in like the summer of 2015 and it was like uh so i think that was like I think it was right after uh, the Secret Service it came out because I think the Secret Service came out in like the spring of 2015, and so it was like the second time I had seen uh, Taron Edgerton in anything. I I I really liked it, and I if you're looking for a World War One movie, it's just another one you could check out that has like a lot of you know interesting young actors. So I, I was just throwing that out there. I remember I I saw it like an, at an independent theater the summer I lived outside of DC, so it didn't get like a huge release or anything like that. But uh, yeah, I was just throwing that out there. But sorry, I no, cut you off. It was just a thought I had. Yeah. Yeah, no, so, no, sounds interesting. I'll mm -hmm. definitely make sure to add it to my list. Um, but yeah, I was basically just saying, I wish I could issue a wholehearted recommendation for it, but I really can't. <laughs> um, if it comes out on streaming, uh, it's not a waste of time to watch it, but don't, don't necessarily make time to go see it at the movies. I don't think uh, it's the best thing out there by a mile right now. Yeah, probably not. I am... Um... Again, if you if if you like Ray Fines, watch this movie. Is what I would say. Like it's it's like, uh, not that I mean we already told this people that are getting spoiled to go away. But like I mean, I I was able to pick it apart more as Fred and I were talking about it. But like you know when I was looking back on it, I wasn't like oh that was just like a bad experience. Like I I I found enough to hold on to in the movie that I think it's worth going to. I just like saw a lot of things it could have done 
differently to like put it on the level of like the the other two movies and um instead it, it just like you know it goes in like too many directions and tries to do, tries to kind of like turn away from like some of the most interesting stuff that uh has more potential for creativity because it's not tied to these real world events which again it's fine and i, I the, one of the, be- the best points i think fred made was just talking about how it does yeah it, it, in some ways it does do a good job of like underscoring like the real like just the real atrocity that was world war one uh so that's that's all well and good it's just like you know not exactly the vibe you go to these movies for necessarily either fred uh before we leave is there anything else you've been watching recently that you would like to recommend to the listeners as we old or new as we uh hit the home stretch of award season here yeah i uh, finally finished uh, watching the third season of succession which mm. i'm sure i'm way behind on uh on that but uh if you if you for, for whatever reason have not watched that yet uh do yourself a favor i don't know when the fourth season is coming out probably not for another year or so you have plenty of time to watch the first three seasons highly recommend it uh, it gets more intense and insane with every season so uh definitely now would be the time to watch those if you haven't yet did you watch the uh first two as they aired or did you do did you do like a binge recently like our friend adam did uh the second one i watched as it aired uh, okay. the first one gotcha. i caught up on right before the second season came out and um, you, just, you just slacked on season three a little bit yeah, so so the problem is Logan doesn't like it as much. She does she doesn't like any of the characters, so she doesn't really enjoy watching that. Fair. So I ended up finishing it by myself. No, it's a fair point, and uh, it's hard to root for anybody in this show. So yeah, uh, I, I, that shows you. Like, yeah. I'm typically someone that's kind of like that. Like I would like to have someone to more clearly clearly be able to root for without like feeling bad about myself. But you know that just shows how well executed the rest of the show is. That I it's still always my number one show of 2021. In spite of that, you know. So yeah, and then two other movies I want to give a quick shout out uh, for. I'll keep that brief. Uh, one is uh, Swan Song, which is on uh, Apple mm. TV, starring Mahershala Ali. Um, really intriguing concept. Really got me to think. I don't necessarily know if the movie is quite as uh, well executed as it could have been, but it really got me thinking for several hours afterwards. So just from a philosophical point of view, I'd highly recommend watching that. Uh, great performance too by Ali and. Uh, the other movie that uh, is available for rent now, which uh, nobody saw because the director made a huge stink about it in an interview, uh, is Ridley Scott's The Last Duel, eh. which uh, was one of my favorite uh, experiences uh, at the movie theater in 2021. Uh, if you do a favorites of the year part again, uh, we'll discuss that one again. But uh, yeah, that's available for rent now. So if you didn't see it in theaters, uh, I highly recommend checking that out. Uh, really one of uh, the best ones Ridley Scott has done in quite a few years yeah i haven't updated my 2021 rankings since like the beginning of december but like i even after i do i think the last duel is still going to be within the top 10 so uh it sounds like we will we will both be taking talking about that at some point uh uh in a couple months uh i i I actually don't even know anything about swan song so just hearing you say that is a good tease for me because i was planning on getting to it at some point i saw you gave it a pretty good review and if i and i I just i just didn't make it to it so um i've i've made fred uh swear to come back and talk about belfast with me whenever he watches it because it might very well be the best picture front runner and i and i I just uh and i just like missed the boat on doing a podcast on it back when it came went back when i saw it in november but like i have to be a completist with the best picture nominees and it's like i think it's the only one that really has a real shot of getting nominated that i currently have not either already put out a podcast out on or having or already recorded a podcast on so i question uh, on that they're definitely doing 10 this year right yeah it's a it's a straight 10 okay Mm -hmm. so yeah so i mean like Yeah. So like, I mean, it, but like for the most part though, it seems like most of those have, I've, I've seen most of them, like, you know, like drive my car has gotten like a lot of plaudits from like all these critics groups and stuff like that. And, um, it's like a, it's a three hour foreign film that like might not play at a theater any closer to me than Fort Lauderdale or Key West or Sarasota. Like it's going to be at a theater in Fort Lauderdale on like a weekend where I'm just not going to be able to make it down to Fort Lauderdale. So I'm like hoping it sticks around for a second weekend, but you can't blame an independent theater for not uh, keeping a three hour Japanese movie for more than one week. So I don't know if I'll, that's like the one that might have a chance of getting nominated where I'm like, just like not guaranteed a chance to see, like, I mean, I'll hopefully it'll stream before I do the top 10 pod, but uh, yeah, other than that, like I've done pods on everything uh, except Belfast at this point. Um, so, but like, I mean, last tool, like, uh, or sorry, uh, Swan Song, like I, I, I'm excited to check it out. Cause I'd heard the same things about Marshall's performance and um, maybe if it like, I'm really uh, inspired by it, I will encourage Fred to, to refresh on it and talk about it when we talk about Belfast. Um, I, I don't, I don't really have a new recommendation. I think I might've even referenced like on one of the last pods that I was like rewatching season one of Euphoria before season two came out. I thought the season two premiere was uh, very good, which 
as of the Fred and I was recording came out like three nights ago. And by the time people are listening to this, the second episode, the second episode will have aired. Uh, so I, I highly recommend that. And I mean, it's just, you know, obvious it's honestly probably about as far away as you can get from uh, my high school experience as one can get, but like still, so the fact that like, I still really connect with it in spite of that shows you like how well done and well acted the show is uh, just kind of absolutely wild that like Zendaya can go from like doing that to doing the Spider-Man stuff and how fun those are and just like how dark and messed up euphoria is. Uh, so I, again, I, I, I might've may very well just like recommended it for like the second trade podcast. I can't remember what I said in the last one, but it's that good. It warrants it. <laughs> I, 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 I hadn't, I hadn't watched the season two premiere at that point. So it's technically a different recommendation. Um, like I, I just haven't watched a lot of new stuff recently. I've been like finishing up like all these other shows I've been watching like uh, yellow jackets and station 11 and stuff like that, which I've already recommended on the podcast. So I'm, I'm just like getting to all that. So, uh, Fred, before we sign off, uh, where can people find your letterbox and Twitter and all that? Yep, my letterbox is uh, just uh, look for Fred Kolb, F R E D K O L B. Um, I post a lot on there, so definitely give me a follow on Letterboxd. Don't post as much on Twitter, uh, but if you want to follow me on Twitter as well, uh, my handle there is Fred the German. That's all one word. Yeah, as usual, I'm at Josh Jernovoy on both Twitter and Letterboxd, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y. The podcast Twitter is at RewindMoviePod. The podcast email is RewindMoviePod at gmail.com. Uh, coming up next on the podcast, our friend Adam is a big fan of Scream, so he's like had that yeah, he, he, he's had the new Scream movie like requested for like quite some time now, and so I don't know how much I'm going to like go give myself an education because I've only ever seen the first Scream, but like it could just end up being a podcast like the Halloween one was where like Adam and Kayla were like scholars compared to me who've like only like seen like the first and the new one in, in the new one. So, uh, so stay tuned for those. And then, uh, once we get in like February, I have a fun, I, as I've mentioned, I think before I have a fun project on, uh, B- Batman leading up to the Batman. So, uh, plenty to look forward to on that as we but like we'll we'll be finishing out award season with some like odds and ends on like whatever comes out as like i see it as i kind of get the like the foreign films and the stuff that's coming out late so thanks again to fred for joining me thanks to everyone for listening and we'll see you next time